Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is a writer and publisher, a man who literally has newsprints all over his face. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Andy Spinoza. Hi, Stu. How are you? Really well, thank you. Good. Well, nice to see you. Thanks for doing this. I am looking forward to hearing about your experiences of interviewing Elvis, hanging out with him, reviewing him and so on. But start us off, take us all the way back to the beginning. When did you first become a fan of his? Uh, I turned 16 in 1977. Uh, I lived in uh, North London. Um, that was a great age to uh, to be 16. You know, Sex Pistols, uh, punk. Uh, I was obsessed with uh, the NME and sounds and Melody Maker. I'd buy them all every week. And, you know, I don't know whether Elvis Costello first came to my attention through those pages or whether I heard something on John Peel or Capital Radio in London at the time, but, uh, you know, I was banging to uh, the singles, the My Aim Is True album, and uh, just pretty much an obsessive um, in those first, uh, that first decade where he released so many great albums. Um, probably lost touch with him here and there as he's travelled so many musical landscapes over the years, but, um, you know, keep coming back to um, not only that first decade, but some of the, you know, some of the more interesting highways and byways that he's got into musically uh, over, you know, more than 40-year career, isn't it? It's a very rich and fertile universe, the Elvis Costello universe. Absolutely, and we're going to immerse ourselves in it as we go along. What was it that appealed to you when you first heard him? Um, I think that, you know, the melody, but also the... The spite, I suppose, the anger, um, you know, like any teenager. Well, I was a spiky individual, given my own sort of personal circumstances, which I don't need to go into here, but I, I, I had a lot of uh, a lot of spikiness in me. I think the times were very, were very like that. They were very, you know, politics was very oppositional and um, he was able to evoke some of those emotions and in such a sort of musical way you know those songs are there to be sung and there's melodies stick in your mind and you know even people who can't sing like me can uh, sing them in the shower quite quite happily to, to yourself and think uh, you could be an Elvis Costello so you know there was a package there there was an image as well and um, the whole thing appealed to me as, as a teenager and, and then continued as, as his image morphed. I sort of went along with those images as well. Yeah, can you remember the first record you bought of his? Um, it would have been um, probably Red Shoes or, um, I mean, I bought, I bought all the singles off that album, may have been Red Shoes. Um, artists released singles fast and furiously at that time, didn't they? And um, yeah, one of those singles off the album. And as you say, the package, with the Barney Bubbles artwork, the checkerboard on the back of my aim is true. I mean, I, I wasn't born in 77, but when I think of that year, they're the kind of images that come to my mind when I think about it. Yeah, I mean, when you look back and read the books, you know, 
you realize um as you get older you know there is a music business machine behind elvis or his management his record label these things didn't come come out of nowhere they were thought about and calculated um to appeal to the audience sum up the times and obviously reflect the artist and uh, while keeping that artist's integrity and i've been around the music business quite a lot in my professional career so you know I, yeah it was a package but i don't think um it was to the detriment of, of the art as it were yeah. yeah yeah well as you know i've asked all of my guests on the podcast to help me compile the ultimate elvis costello playlist each guest has added five songs to the Dangerous Amusements playlist, one from the 70s, one from the 80s, one from the 90s, one from the noughties, and one from 2010 to the present day. What did you pick from the 70s for it? And from this year's model yeah I could have picked any or maybe of, of, of eight or nine tracks from this year's model when I was playing this yesterday to my uh, to one of my daughters it's just got uh, it's got a real punch it's got a real melody it's got a real spite I think I remember reading uh, that it was the subject of it is perhaps uh, a music business uh, mogul uh, with a bad reputation but um, you know, there's some some brilliant lines in there. You know, polishing my precious china. I don't know. There's just a evokes a kind of a an atmosphere and a and a story. I think all a lot of Elvis's best songs have got a kind of a story and characters in them that your own imagination um, sorts out uh, within the song. And um, I just got, it's got a real punch to it. So uh, yeah, it's uh, one of my faves. It's uncompromising as well, isn't it, lyrically? You know, don't ask me to apologise. I won't ask you to forgive me. If I'm going to go down, you're going to come with me. Yeah, I mean, you know, those early albums just full of really stinging couplets um, that, that John Dunn would have been proud of, you know, where he yokes together really unlikely uh, metaphors and really um, put, you know, sharp insults. So, yeah, it's, it's just a... It's, and it's a really... Uh, concise, punchy, brief track, and um, I think you know it's like a condensed package of spite, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, concise is exactly the word that I had in mind just as you were talking there. And as you said, that's kind of the the thing with the whole album. They're all these perfect three minutes of just tight, concise. They're just great songs. Yeah, little little kind of explosive bombs, aren't they? Of uh, of, uh, of incendiary emotions although you know I was look, listening actually to this year's model just yesterday and hearing Night Rally uh, I think it's the final track on the album and thinking how some of those lines and some of the I think thought behind the song could be so appropriate to today um, really does uh, make you think yeah yeah Musically, hand in hand is quite interesting as well because it's 
it's an indication that Elvis and Niccolo, of course, are starting to find different sounds in the studio with the the backwards tape at the beginning, which is something they didn't do on My Aim Is True. That's a fairly straight collection of really brilliantly performed, brilliant songs in the studio, but there's no trickery there. But once you get to maybe watching The Detectives as a single and then into things like Hand In Hand, they're really finding their way around the studio and coming up with different sounds. Absolutely, and I think, you know, it's the first signs, really, that um, Elvis is a very adventurous um, in many ways, you know, experimental and bold uh, artist in terms of in terms of arrangements and production. You know, it sort of prefigures sort of imperial bedroom and the sort of production um, effects that you're getting on there. So, yeah, it's just showing that sort of adventurousness. Although, I believe Nick Lowe used to be known as Basher Lowe because yeah. he just just say. Bash it down and yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll handle it. You know, <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely quite right on that. Yeah, and the first album with the attractions as well. Are you getting to live gigs around this point with the attractions? Yeah, I think I'm not sure if um, my first Elvis show, I'm pretty sure, was the Hammersmith Palais. And I think that would have been 1978. Um, so I would have been uh, 17. I was probably a bit... So I was just too young, really, to be getting out of the house uh, for the Stiff uh, for the Stiff's tour, uh, which I was reading about avidly. So I think probably Dominion... Uh, and then I saw, saw him at the, uh, them at the Dominion Theatre in London, again, possibly 78, maybe 79. But... Um, and, uh, you know, after then, I, after that, I was literally jumping on every every tour that I could. Yeah, yeah. What were those gigs like back then? Um, I think from, from, if I can remember that far back, you know, there was just a, a frenetic energy, but, you know, such a tight band, really controlled. And there's, you know, the musicality in the, in the keyboards. Um, just a great band where everyone sort of knows their part but is there's that band sort of structure but everyone's playing out of their skin within within that structure really really great shows interesting that your next choice as we move into the 80s is is a track that doesn't have that band on obviously we get to king of america in 86 and um we've got the tcb band on board now who played with the other Elvis and the attractions only on uh, one track on that album and the song that you picked from there is Brilliant Mistake I mean, the, the combination of the lyrics and the melody, this is just, uh, it's got that kind of plangent, energetic kind of feel. Um, and the, you know, the instrumentation just really, just really emphasizes that. Um, you know, I'm not, they do say, you know, trying to describe music is like dancing about architecture. And I'm not, I'm not a music expert, but this is something that's, that's a track that just appeals to me through its sort of, of evocation of a, a 
of an atmosphere and you know what a great title you know brilliant mistake it just just grabs you from the off yeah and I like the idea of him going in with this all-american band all these legendary players like James Burton okay track one a song about how disillusioned I am with your country (laughs) no absolutely but I mean I think on that album he's also got little palaces where he'll uh you know he gives both barrels to that sort of uh you know wife beating uh english working class um culture so yeah i mean there's no let up is there in the in the sort of vitriol side of the uh, of stella songbook and um i mean it is a lot of people's favorite album i know that from looking at the uh, you know the the fan facebook page etc and and i can see why cuz it's just there's just so many good songs on it and the, the playing is just immaculate yeah well it came out February 86 got to number 11 in the UK album charts 39 in America bonkers to think that he then comes out a few months later another great album completely different setup, different producer different band and an equally as good album in Blood and Chocolate which um, you know we've discussed elsewhere as well um, but it was it was on the back of that and the following album that you got to hang out with Elvis you got to review him profile him and just tell us so, what yeah, that was I like. was um, I was a freelance journalist uh, at the time and I don't know quite how I I hustled the gig but because I was mainly a Manchester-based um, music writer, and I got a commission from a magazine in Scotland called Cut, and Cut was a sort of very classy, large-format um, mag which had a sort of wider circulation than Glasgow, where it was, than Scotland, where it was based, and somehow they were talking to Costello's people, and he wanted to do an interview with non-London, sort of non-metropolitan <laughs> media because he'd moved to Dublin. Yeah. And he moved to Dublin partly out of sort of disillusionment with uh, with England and certainly disappointment with the Thatcher government. And he he, he was really dialing up his, uh, his, his Celtic heritage yeah. and his, 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 Irish, um, his Irish heritage. So he'd moved to Dublin. Um, he there gathered around him a bunch of you know uh, amazing Irish music musicians and of course recorded the album album Spike. So um, that was in, in early '89. I went off to uh, to Dublin to interview him, to meet him in a hotel, um, and spend an, spend an hour with him, uh, chatting, asking. Uh, some embarrassing questions I, I, I can remember, but you know, getting some great quotes from him, and I and I think I, I was struck by you know how scarily fluent he was, you know, uh, unlike sort of mumbling journalists like myself. You know, he would speak in, in his replies were in fully formed sentences, yeah. um, fully you know, formed paragraphs, exactly, perfectly articulated. You know, uh, leavened with a lovely sense of humour. And um, I think, you know, that became, um, <clears throat> that was a really big moment for me, having never obviously met the guy properly. I had sort of half bumped into him once in Hacienda nightclub in, in Manchester, but I was too shy to really uh, approach him properly. But, you know, coming back to that interview, he, um, he, he gave me some great quotes about the music scene at the time. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a good, proper, solid hour. And my 
tape recorder uh, it picked up loads and loads of great great copy yeah. and um, I was able to you know eventually turn around a, a long piece which which cut used on the cover um, but after the interview he said look it's um, do you want to come to the pub with, with me and, and Cot uh, Cot O'Reardon who uh, obviously I don't know if he was married at the time but they were partners in 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 Dublin. It was her birthday, and would well, I come to the pub with them? So I thought, wow, great, you know. And I uh, was meeting um, journalist in the pub called Bill Graham, who was um, a guy that picked up on U two in the early days and very much associated uh, with a dub with a Dublin music scene. And I thought, wow, this is this is great, <laughs> going out in the town with Elvis yeah. and uh, my hero and. Uh, Sink a few pints, maybe, and tell some tall tales, and I could uh, start a lifelong friendship. All that, you know, you do. You <laughs> you, you want your heroes to uh, to like you, and all the rest of it. So um, we got to the pub, and it, it was funny because we sat just before uh, started the interview. We went into a, a taxi that was on the rank outside the hotel, where we, um, and and we got in the taxi, and Elvis was plainly trying out his best uh, Dublin accent, but he gave the taxi driver the, direct, the, the name of the pub, and the taxi driver said, basically, I don't hear you, what are you saying? He made Elvis repeat this three times, <laughs> and every time he did, his accent became more English, <laughs> less Irish, and, and repeating in slower diction. And um, I just wonder if the taxi driver was kind of making a point. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, actually, yeah, you're, yeah. yeah, you're not actually that Irish, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got to the pub anyway, and uh, we met Cot and um, Bill Graham, and uh, and I said, "Well, I'll get the I'll get the drinks in. You know, what do you want?" And Elvis and Cot both ordered Bally Gowan, which uh, to my ears sounded like a whiskey. <laughs> And I thought, wow, they're on the hard stuff yeah, yeah. already, you know. Start of a big night. It's only five o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> we're on the, on the hard stuff. And, um, of course, when I got to the bar, uh, the barman uh, enlightened me that Bally Gowan was a spring water. <laughs> and I didn't realise that they, you know, they were on the wagon. Yeah. I think there's a couple of tracks, um, and I can't remember which album, you know, The Big Light and other yeah. tracks about hangovers and heavy drinking yeah king um, of america yeah. that's it and yeah. um which so they were completely teetotal um and we had a nice chat for about half an hour and but quite right it was cot's birthday they probably went and did something far more congenial than sitting there with a couple of journalists so i had a couple of pints with bill graham and then uh managed to make my way home so yeah it was um Great little experience. Uh, wasn't quite what I expected at the time, but importantly, got a great interview. Spent an hour talking about the important stuff. And I think, you know what, um, really, that interview brought home to me is Elvis Stello is a, he's a serious artist. And I think this is what turns a lot of people off him. Any, you know, he's quite strong, strong meat, even a light or... Uh, more show busy version of Elvis is you can you can hear the intensity coming out of yeah. the, coming out of the radio or the or the player and um, I think it's that he's real marmite he's got a real marmite intensity 
to him, which um, some of those strong flavours people don't think should be in their musical listening. They want something a bit more saccharine or yeah, something yeah. a bit more escapist. Mm, mm. Um, but you know, obviously he's, a, um, he's an intense person and you, know, you look at his, his output, you know, he never, never slows up, always got incredible energy yeah. really to to collaborate and uh, contribute so many different projects and, and styles. Yeah. Well, what was it like for you as a fan to kind of deal with him in a journalistic capacity? Because you, by that point, presumably you've interviewed lots of famous people, big names, but for it to be Elvis, someone you'd admired since, what, 77? Yeah, it's funny because you've got this, this personal thing about how... Um, yeah, I interview lots of famous people, politicians, and then, you know, you're kind of just doing a job to a certain degree. Um, in a way, sometimes, because you know such a lot about someone, it can kind of get in the way. And you've mm-hmm. got this personal admiration for the for the music, it can get in the way. And of course, you've got a feeling that maybe you might not like this person, or actually worse, they might not, not like you. Yeah. And But that's not really the job of the journalist to be liked. Um job is to get your story and um, and produce your copy and make it readable, I suppose, to people who not only were fans, but people who are not fans. So you've got a number of responsibilities on you professionally that um, shouldn't really get in, uh, shouldn't really uh, rub up against your personal feelings. Yeah. Um, Although you wouldn't have minded if he just said, hey, Randy, what do you think of these lyrics I've got here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Oh, I don't think he was quite prepared after one hour meeting to do that. But he was prepared to ask me to go to the pub for a drink. So nice. it's it's not a bad little story to uh, to dine out on, even if it wasn't the uh, the rollicking uh, night on the tiles that I no. I expected no. at a certain point. Well, I thought from the article of the line that jumped out at me, particularly given that he's brought out Spike, which is so eclectic, so many different styles, recorded in so many different places. He said to you, uh, I didn't want to do anything that felt like it was putting on an ill-fitting suit. And I thought that's that kind of sums up what he's trying to do there. He, he's going for the different styles, but not for the sake of it. Yeah, I mean, he, he made the point, in fact, an even better uh, metaphor he used was you go on holiday and you buy a colourful or Hawaiian shirt and then you you go home and wear it and it looks wrong. He didn't want taking on a new musical style mm-hmm. to be that um, clashing uh, or, or inappropriate uh, Hawaiian shirt and I think, you know I've read reviews um, about many of his albums where critics do accuse him of just sort of musical tourism um, I never feel that though I don't, I don't ever feel it, it's done for artificial reasons it's no, because he exactly. believes in that to convey those particular songs yeah exactly I, I think you know it's an easy it's an easy criticism to make isn't it I mean I don't think anyone can accuse his country influenced output of being anything other than you know suffused with kind of love and uh, uh, and passion for that music similar with the Stax type mm. uh, approach to Get Happy or Spike you know I just think he's so omnivorous in his in his musical um, interest that to him it's a really interesting project you know I mean I, I interviewed him in, in 1996 actually if, uh, over the phone when I was on the Manchester Evening News for when he came to uh, when he was doing the tour with John Hall. Mm. Howell and it was it was singing 
um, Shakespearean and Elizabethan uh, material. And, and again, you know, he'd immersed himself in that style. He'd researched, he'd immersed, and he had a, he had a kind of a musical integrity about what he was doing. So, yeah, I mean, some people will take that easy shot, but I, I think on the whole, I don't think you can, you can level musical tourism at him. The dress code for listening to dangerous amusements is strictly turquoise pyjamas and motorcycle hat only. Your next choice for the playlist from the 1990s, a track of one of my favourite albums, actually, from Brutal Youth. Uh, you've gone for Rockin' Horse Road. Well, I love Brutal Youth, and actually, in, in some of my wilder moments, I, I might say this is my favourite album, and I think that's because okay. I, keep, I keep going back to it. I just keep going back to it. There's so many interesting lyrical and musical ideas that it's just so satisfying melodically. Um, and I think 20% Amnesia is on this album yeah, as well yeah. and I just I, I nearly made that you know because when you when you see a Costello band rock really rocking like Peace, Love and Understanding or uh, I mean I'd love them to play live 20% Amnesia I've never seen that yeah. that could have been it but I love Rocking Horse Road sort of the slowing down of the and then the, the faster dynamics um, there's a lot of different emotions in there um, but I could have made it London's brilliant parade either yeah uh, and I went through Regis Park recently uh, with very few people in it because of the pandemic and uh, I stuck it on right. <laughs> stuck it on right. my phone as I was playing I just thought it's just so Again, I think I'll use the word evocative, you know, of a place and a time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, a real sort of fuel for, for your imagination in, in thinking about people and places and atmospheres. Yeah. And of course, on Brutal Youth, we get a, a partial attractions reunion as well, or a full reunion on some tracks, Niccolo playing bass on some, but Bruce Thomas back for some others as well for the first time since what, Glastonbury 87, Instant Karma. So that's interesting. Only lasted for one more record after that. So I know, it's funny. I mean, I, I did see the press around Bruce Thomas's uh, book, which mm. he released I can't remember, yeah, a couple many, now, hasn't yeah, he? How many years ago was that? But I tried reading that book and um, I thought it was, unfortunately, I never, I never finished it. I suppose I was, I was looking for the, ju- the juicy parts. It was, I thought in, in one respect, it did fulfill its um, objective of getting over quite how dreary and boring a, a long tours of America mm. are. Mm. It was just sort of one motel after another. Yeah. Um, but, and, and who knows what really went on between the two of them. But, um, you know, it's it's the classic lineup, but I think Davy Farragher, a bit like a football team. You know, he's made that position his own. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. With harmony vocals as well, which we were talking about before we recorded. It obviously, isn't always a big part of Elvis's lineup, but Farragher has given that since the Imposters came. Yeah, together. I think if we were being honest, and most fans need to be honest. You know, we've all seen Elvis gigs where his voice has 
as a bit to bit. And in a way, that's why I don't enjoy the solo shows as much as, as a band experience, um, because so much is resting on that voice. So I think he, you know, he probably realised how much uh, of some back, some backing vocals would enhance the overall listening experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two, the two girl singers on the very la- latest tour are just sensational and yeah. shows that Elvis. No, not only did he, it shows his maturity, I think, and, and um, honesty in, in not only having them as backing vocalists, but bringing them up front and making them yeah. such a major part of the show. And the chemistry between them just worked brilliantly. I saw two, two of those shows, mm-hmm. Liverpool and Manchester, they mm-hmm. were cracking shows. And yeah, they were. They, they, those two uh, singers were a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. Let's move forward on the playlist to the noughties. Now, you originally picked a song that is already on the playlist because Mark Billingham got there first, which was, um, and I think you're both right to pick this one, which is Country Darkness from The Delivery Man. So that's already on the playlist, so you can have another go and pick another one. But before we do that, just, I know Mark's talked about it, but what, what is it about Country Darkness that you like? Oh, it's just, just the atmosphere, you know. It just, it just captures it, it's just like, bottling uh, the bar and the you know I've never, I've never been to the American Deep South <laughs> um, but you know I just think there's there's a just a strong evocation of a atmosphere there which uh, very very compelling but I think the, the one I changed to when that was um, uh, snapped up by uh, someone else is uh, Monkey to Man okay same album yeah which on the same album which you know, I did say earlier that, you know, how serious and intense and how that earnestness can somehow put people off Costello. But, you know, when he does humour, and there's a sort of a line in, in humour going back through, you know, the big light all the way back to sort of mystery dance, you know. I mean, Monkey to Man is just such a witty sort of about turn on, on evolution and he's got that sort of carnival barker kind of atmosphere of uh of the place in which this uh these uh proclamations are taking place it's just so witty and uh and the music to bring it out you know so uh i love that track Really kind of annoys me when uh, I listen to Six Music a lot in, in England, which I, which I love, you know. But you know, they always play Pump It Up yeah, or Radio yeah. Radio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an artist, you know, it's a bit like they always play Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Well, you know, these kind of artists have got 40 year track records yeah. bursting with uh, fantastic, you know, fantastic songs, and they and they always go for the the old favourites and. Um, I'm sure a lot of fans, you know, even though they they might like Radio Radio and Pump It Up, prefer prefer to hear something that displayed the full range of what Elvis can do. Yeah, well, that's why I 
came up with this rule for the um, playlist actually that it had to be one song per decade because you think well otherwise people are just going to talk about my aim is true but he's done so much great stuff and i mean i i love the delivery man the whole album came out in september 2004 i think it's under the radar because it just didn't do anything in the charts at all it got to number 73 in the uk so you think Unless you're a fan, yeah. you probably don't know the songs on this album. And as well as the ones you've mentioned, you think of things like The Scarlet Tide, that people probably know the Alison Krauss version, maybe yeah, more yeah. than Elvis's version. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just so ripe for people to go back and have a listen to it. Well, there's so much to go back to, isn't there? And I think, you know, that's um, there are plenty of albums that he's made which, because of either the musical fashion of the time or promotion or whatever, you know, that just have been overlooked. And that's kind of part of the real uh, wonder of the, of the Costello uh, songbook that you can, you can actually discover. I suppose albums that maybe you, that you dismissed because the media wasn't talking about them at the time. Um, Delivery Man is one of them that his love of coming up with Characters. I mean, I read somewhere that it was based on um, some kind of a play, or there was some some. It feels like there is a story there, and there are stories within the story about different characters, you know. And I and I, and I love that about about his music, which um, you know. Let's face it, you know, what other artists kind of approach work in that way? Mm. I mean, they're just usually just songs. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think. You know, maybe the Arctic Monkeys are lyrically kind of just as interesting, kind of in heirs to his kind of uh, lyrical strength. But not many, not many bands have got that, that those little worlds that exist within the albums. So yeah, um, that's one album that, that people should go back to. And if you go to talk to people in the street, of course, you know, I mean, some people only know him for. For, for the she yeah. version, which, you know, I personally can't stand. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, there was an interesting thread on the Facebook uh, fans page of, you know, tracks, Elvis tracks that people didn't like. And, um, and they vary just as much as the tracks that people do like. And it just shows what a wide... Uh, universe there is of uh, of the Elvis stuff. Yeah. Well, the final song that you've chosen for the playlist is one that I absolutely love, so I'm really glad someone's picked this one. Again, from another album that didn't really do anything. This was higher charting, actually, than The Delivery Man. This got to number 71, National Ransom from 2010. And the song is Jimmy Standing in the Rain, which I think is a fantastic song. Yeah, and I think um, we should always be aware, and he does make us aware of his, of his sort of... Liverpool, Lancashire, because of course, back in the day, uh, Liverpool uh, and Manchester were in Lancashire, yeah. weren't they? Um, the guy, the, the travelling singer, a bit like a travelling salesman, really, you know, going from town to town, standing in the rain at a Lancashire station. must have seen uh, him perform this several times live um you know and it's a it's a solo solo effort yeah and um 
it's interesting to me that he does identify as a Liverpudlian. And I, I was just going back, I, you know, my career has often been spent, you know, waiting at trains in Lancashire in the rain. So it's kind of uh, meant to me to me personally. I've done a lot of work around the towns and cities of the northwest. But also, again, he, he, he conjures up that sort of uh, the atmosphere of the, the sort of the music hall singer. And interesting that he identifies as a, as a scouser, despite the fact he was, you know, spent his formative years in, uh, in, in London or on the, in, the, in the suburb or on the yeah. outskirts of London. And I think, you know, he would have had all the heritage from his, um, his I think, his mother's side. Uh, when he moved to Liverpool, mm. when he, I think he was when he was sixteen. Yeah. But coming from the south myself, it, it can be a very homogenous experience. I would have thought that coming back or coming to live in Liverpool for a few years, when he getting getting Flip City together, and um, and, and finding out his you know his own musical uh, development, he would have found a lot. In, in Liverpool to uh, to latch on to to, to inspire him mm-hmm. um, and there's a very specific kind of character as we know about well, about all the northern English cities it's quite interesting you know um, each city has got very uh, particular kind of personality and um, I'm sure he found a lot there to uh, to make him feel um Give him almost that outsider status in the music industry. Plus, of course, you know, he had the Beatles legacy to fall back on and the whole uh, maybe music tradition of, uh, that, that, that was available through his, through his family background. But, you know, I do find this, this identity element of his uh, career fascinating. I'm sure, you know, many, many fans do. The taking on of different... Um, of different identities, different personalities, different names, and um, he's not quite a shapeshifter as a as a Bowie, but um, certainly you think that he gets a lot of artistic inspiration from uh, from trying on different identities. Yeah. Well, this particular song, I was interested that I've heard him talk about this, and he says he actually wrote it very quickly, which I find really remarkable when you look at the lyrics. It, you know, nobody wants to buy a counterfeited prairie lullaby in a colliery town, a hip flask and fumbled skein with some stage door. Josephine is all they'll get now. You know, these are not Moon and June lyrics. You kind of think these must be crafted and chiselled over a long period but of time. I think this is just the wonder of him. You know, he must be so prolific. He must all. He must always be. Um, uh, scribbling stuff down or talking into a, into a recorder because you know it, it is um, it's, it's poetry isn't it you know and um, it seems to be so energetic and dynamic um, you know we haven't even talked about his collaborations and his and his other projects that he does he, you know if you just a cursory glance on YouTube, he's been popping up with so many different yeah, artists yeah. for one-off shows and one-off songs. Um, and it's just an incredible work rate. He's never been one to sit on his uh, sit on his laurels. Yeah, well, someone he has performed with is Bob Dylan, and that I don't know if you've read it. There's the fantastic passage in Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink when he 
he talks about reading the lyric to Jimmy standing in the rain to Bob Dylan. Dylan has uh, read aloud a lyric that would obviously go on to be paying blood on Tempest. So Costello responds by reciting Jimmy standing in the rain to him. And he said it was just fun to be in the ring with the champ for a minute or two. And he says when he got to that bit about eyes going in and out of focus, mild and bitter from tuberculosis, he says he saw that rhyme register in Bob's eyes like a glancing glove. And I thought that's great. And it's so northern northern England, isn't it? Yeah. And you think, well, you know, there's some of our culture, if you like, hitting home with... Yeah. Uh, with da, 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 da. You tell, I, I was recently tuned in on one of those uh, Steve Naive pandemic oh, yeah, sessions yeah. and great. Costello uh, uh, was looped in on that and he told the um, told the story of how he um, he got into uh, he, he got into a gig um, he got plugged into a gig in the States when he, in his first flush of stardom and he ended up being introduced to Bob Dylan uh, after the show and uh, Dylan said I've heard a lot about you and flummoxed and intimidated by Bob Dylan as anyone would be, he just said, I've heard a lot about you as well. You know, <laughs> felt really stupid yeah, for saying yeah. it. What else did you say? <laughs> exactly. but it made me, made me feel a little bit better because I was a bit yeah. flummoxed and intimidated about interviewing Elvis, you know. Well, you mentioned seeing him do this live. And again, I, I've seen him do it as well. And I love the fact that he, when he plays it solo, he then he segues into Brother, Can You Spare Me a Dime? And he'll, he'll step off mic, take the earpiece out, and he'll just sing out into the hall. And it's... It, this isn't a contradiction in terms. It's like a really understated showstopper, isn't it? Fantastic. It is. It is a, and, that, and I think that's what um, sort of in, um, provoked me to uh, to choose this one. It's not just uh, the uh, recorded version, but maybe three times I've seen him do it live, yeah. and uh, yeah. and it really it's, it sticks with you because you know again it shows it shows him one it shows him innovating and doing something completely uh, different to what you might expect it that voice carries and the emotion carries with it and makes it gives it greater impact just the final bit on jimmy because i, w- I was looking at um the sleeve of unfaithful music and disappearing ink and i thought it was quite i don't know if i'm reading too much into it but i thought it was interesting that you know the about the author section which you think, well, if you've just spent 20 quid on a 700-page book, you know, you probably do know a bit about him. So, you know, Elvis Costello has written songs, including, you know, Alison, Watching the Detectives, Shipbuilding, but also mentions Jimmy Standing in the Rain. So it was interesting that Elvis himself perhaps brackets this with, with the cornerstone songs of his career. Interesting, yeah, that he's, he's elevated that and highlighted it. Um, very interesting, because, again... It links back. It links to a kind of a heritage which uh, is his by family, but it's not his by experience. Um, that sort of found identity, which uh, I think is a very sort of postmodern, postmodern thing. But that's for a, a conversation for another day, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, it's been great chatting to you, and I love your song choices for the playlist as well. So thanks very much for doing this. Oh, brilliant! It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have to have a Ballygowan before we go. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. You can find Andy on Twitter at Andy Spin. We're on there too at Dangerous Amuse. Give us a follow to keep up to date with what we're doing on the podcast and talk Elvis with us. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook too. And don't forget, you can listen to our playlist by searching for Dangerous Amusements on Spotify. Our theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. 
Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements. Sending you our love and vicious kisses.